Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I am Harrison Cayley. Joining me again, like last week, is Corey Schink. Hello. And we are going to be continuing our conversation from last week on God, religion, and the universe, and everything else. Last week, we looked at a few topics, one of which was um, Collingwood's, the philosopher Robin Collingwood's ideas about religion and art, and his specifically his idea of a religious consciousness that grasps the truth through religious imagery or symbols and that the root of those image of that imagery is in imagination and by extension we added um religious experience and basically as a way of trying to explain why we're religious of course there are a lot of a lot of valid ways of looking at why we're religious. We're just commenting on a couple of them, but you know there are all kinds of ideas that we could get into, but we're not going to. <clears throat> just for the purposes of our discussion, we're going to focus on um, on these ones. And so one thing that we didn't really get into last week in regard to Collingwood's idea is to take a deeper look at this idea of religious experience um, because... The way Collingwood looks at it, it's almost as if um, he kind of writes off the imagery as um, nothing but um, nothing but imagery, you know, nothing but imagination. Like the implication being, it's purely imaginary, right? It's just a, almost like a, a total fiction. But when we add in the the dimension of religious experience, um, we can ask, well, is there even a reality to Maybe some of those objects of imagination, some of those imaginary um, creations, or you know, the, uh, just is there some reality behind either the experience or some of what uh, what shape those experiences take? So we're going to start with that and see where the discussion takes us from there, um, with the hope eventually of getting to um, this. Um, this alternative idea that contrasts or that, that plays against the, the idea that we brought up in uh, last week about God as the cosmic criminal, uh, as in a being that not only breaks the laws of causality, but also is um, a pretty nasty guy um, because of the problem of evil, which is a, uh, you know, a, a recurring problem in theology. But so just to start out with, let's get into this um, um, religious experience, um, Corey. I think you've got a quote from William James. Yeah, the, uh, let's hear that one. I've got a quote from uh, his book, uh, "Varieties of Religious Experience," on page fifty-four. He had a uh, um, he had a number of different testimonies from individuals and how their ex- religious experiences had shaped their lives. And on page fifty-four, he reads. Um, I remember the night and almost the very spot on the hilltop where my soul opened out, as it were, into the infinite, and there was a rushing together of the two worlds, the inner and the outer. It was deep calling unto deep, the deep that my own struggle had opened up within being, answered by the unfathomable deep without, reaching beyond the stars. I stood alone with him who had made me, and all the beauty of the world and love and sorrow and even temptation— I did not seek him, but felt the perfect unison of my spirit with his. The ordinary sense of things around me faded. For the moment, nothing but an ineffable joy and exultation remained. 
There was, as I recalled it, no sudden change of thought or of belief except that my early crude conception of God had, as it were, burst into flower. Since that time, no discussion that I have heard of the proofs of God's existence has been able to shake my faith. Having once felt the presence of God's spirit, I've never lost it again. I'm aware that it may justly be called mystical. I'm not enough acquainted with philosophy to defend it from that or any other charge. I feel that in writing of it, I have overlaid it with words rather than put it very clearly to your thought. But such as it is, I have described it as carefully as I now am able to do. Well, before we comment on that one, um, I want to read a, uh, from a, a page in um, Collingwood's book, Speculamentus, that I think can ask, act as, kind of goes along with that quote, but also kind of contrasts with it in a bit. So he's, he starts, The assumption that God is a concept, an object of thought, the ultimate reality of, philosophical, of philosophical analysis. Um, well, the assumption is that, you know, based on some other things that he wrote. But he continues, Now, is this identification of God with the absolute legitimate? All theology assumes that it is, but it cannot be. God is the Holy One, the worshipped, the object of faith. The absolute is reality demonstrated the object of reason. No one can worship the absolute, and no one can prove the existence of God. It is true that people have tried to do both these things, but they have uniformly failed. The proofs of the existence of God form a long and glorious chapter in the history of human thought, but they have always ended by proving something that is not the existence of God. The attempt to worship the absolute has been a not... the attempt to worship the absolute has been a not uninteresting chapter in the history of religion, and it has always ended in the worship of something that is not the absolute. The simple religious consciousness is here our best guide. It knows that God is revealed not to the intellect but to the heart, which means not to the uh, which means not the practical reason or the emotional faculty, but simply the religious consciousness. God is not known; He is adored. We cannot think him, we can only love and fear him. The simple religious consciousness knows that when philosophers call their ultimate reality by the name of God, they are taking that name in vain and pretending to be what they are not. They are, in fact, as insincere as is a religion which talks of the supreme being. God and the absolute are not identical but irretrievably distinct, and yet they are identical in this sense. God is the imaginative or intuitive form by which the absolute reveals itself to the religious consciousness. So I think that we had like a, uh, an example from James's book of just that, is that this guy is describing his, first of all, is this James or it's just a, uh, it's just a, a guy that he's quoting. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So this guy is describing this kind of ineffable experience, right? And he even says that putting it into words is kind of kind of cheapens it. It's like the it takes something out of it. There's no way that he can he can um, convey that experience through words, and that even like his previous notions of God were were just kind of filler. Like they were thought, and they didn't become real until he had this experience. And so this is like what Collingwood's saying. This is a, a direct. Um, a direct feeling of, or, or a direct speaking to the religious consciousness. It's a, um, a connection with, or you know, a grasp of, like the re- religious consciousness is experiencing this this thing, like like God. And I think Collingwood's point is that we like there's there's two kind of modes of 
of human experience. Well, there are more than two, but in this case, he's focusing on two. There's the the religious experience of God. And so when, when we're speaking of God, we're, we're speaking in a dimension of, of human experience that is based in in this kind of feeling, this, this very root um, basic level of experience, of direct experience. And when we're talking about like God is the supreme being or the ultimate, we're, we're approaching like a level of philosophical analysis where we're, we're talking about these things as, as concepts and ideas that we can, uh, that we can understand and comprehend, but they're like two different faculties. They're two different ways of knowing something. And to, to just expand on this guy, the, you know, this experience that you gave or that this guy gave and that you read, Corey, um, <clears throat> when we look at religious experience, like there's actually been a lot of research done on it, but it you know it's not very popularized or or well known. I recently read a book called Paul in Ecstasy, and it's about the the presence of religious experience in early Christianity, specifically in the letters of Paul. And the the author uh, Colleen Chance, she a lot of the book is just um, like psychological information studies from from um, tests and experiments that have been done on people about their religious experiences. And they're called altered states of consciousness in the literature. And there are all kinds of different altered states of consciousness. And many of them, like I, uh, I, I didn't know how in depth these things have been studied. Like that, you know, they'll, they can, they've done tests on which parts of the brain are active in certain, uh, in certain different experiences. They've done all kinds of like social um, analysis of these like in which kinds of societies certain um, religious experiences are more prevalent, in what classes, um, like you'll find that some religious experiences are more prevalent in like a, an, a so-called like oppressed or or low-class environment, and some are more more prevalent in a, in a higher class, or just based on the social organization. So you'll have um, like um, glossolalia, which is t- speaking in tongues, is um, if I remember correctly, it's more it's more predominant in um, in like loosely organized um, settings, but when you have a more hierarchical um, structure, it, it you you lose certain or you don't see that so much. Well, I can't remember the exact details. We're, we'll probably that's a book that I want to return to. So, uh, you know, in the coming months, sometime we'll we'll get into that. But one of the <clears throat> one of the religious experiences that is in the literature is I believe they call it the um, absolute unified being. And this is an experience that is, um, I'd, I'd say, is one that you, is one that that guy described in that quote, is this very clear um, encounter with what appear, what what is felt as and experienced as an absolute, like being that is that is encompassing like the entire creation, basically God. It's this. So when, like last week, we were talking about, well, why do people why have people historically come up with these ideas of, you know, encountering different beings and angels and demons? Well, it, it's it's quite obvious that in certain altered states of consciousness, um, there are experiences in which uh, people encounter these beings exactly as they describe them, right? And it's kind of like um, in near-death experiences where if you look at different cultures, you'll find that all cultures have near death experiences, but depending on the religion that the person has, they'll encounter like different beings or, and, and you know, uh, it, it, the, the experience will conform with their belief system basically. 
And so, <clears throat> so it may be that different people from different cultures, from different traditions, will see different things. But what's universal is that they're seeing and experiencing like something that they that is experienced like how how else can you say it as another being right and this could be like the example we used last week of the dmt experiences of like encountering uh a stereotypical like gray alien um and, and again we're ma- you know i'm not making any statement as to like what le- what what value we should place on like the actual reality of these events. Like if we should take them at face value or if there's something more to them, I think there's something more to them, but it's easy to understand how, how these ideas came about. Because if you look at the experiences people have, it's like, well, why do they think that there are demons? Well, because they actually experienced what to them was a demon. It's not like they just imagined it and came up with this hypothesis for why something bad happened. Oh, it must've been this imp, you know, this impish, horned creature out of there well no probably people in an altered state of consciousness experienced this impish horned demon looking creature right and then they they just wrote about it of course that's not the only explanation there's going to be all kinds of other stuff going on but it's obviously rooted in some kind of experience and all you have to do is look at the the literature and and read some experiences that people have to to see okay well it's pretty you know it makes sense where this stuff would come from but for this one in particular, the absolute unified being, this is kind of like an experience that blows all the others out of the water. It's like, it's like for, for some instant, for some moment that may feel like it lasts an eternity, there's an experience of this unif- grand unified being, like this, w- w- which people have, have called like God. And it's, it's, it seems, um, I think there are even two distinctions that are, that are made. Um, and you'll find, again, this comes down to some people from some religions are more likely to experience one and some from others are likely to experience the other. So some will experience like this unified being as a being, right? So it's like this guy, he underst- he knew when he had this experience that this was an experience of God, you know, of this, of the, in the philosophical language of like the ultimate, but on, on his level, it's an experience. And for that experience, we use the word God. In in altered states of consciousness studies, they say absolute unified being, or I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Or you know, then when we try to look at it, at it philosophically, we might say um, unified, uh, the ultimate being, or something like that, supreme being. Um, but again, we come back to the question: Is why do people have these experiences, and what is the nature of these experiences? So I mentioned Mike Shermer last week. I'll mention him again just because he's very annoying and. He's one of those guys that you that you like to hate just because <laughs> he's a pretty good sport too. I've I've heard him on a uh, like interviewed by a couple of people that just vehemently disagree with him, and he's always a good sport about being on the show and not losing his cool. But still, I just disagree with pretty much everything he says. That might be might be an exaggeration, but he would guys like him would say that um, that these experiences are just stuff going on in your brain just kind of anomalous things in your brain that just produce this experience and that there is no grand unified being, um, absolute being that, that you are in count, that you are experiencing. And, and that's it because that's impossible. And that's usually what Shermer's arguments like come down to is that, well, it's impossible. How can you imagine how that could be the case? You know, therefore you shouldn't imagine that it could be the case and therefore it's not true. 
And but you know, there's the question, right? Could could there be a, a level of reality, uh, or you know, some type of reality to this experience? And what could it be? So could it just be that when you when a person experiences Super, uh, you know, uh, absolute unified being and experiences that as something, maybe they're experiencing exactly what they say they are or some close approximation of what, they say, what they're saying they are. Maybe when people experience, you know, strange beings in an altered state of consciousness, maybe those have some degree of reality that isn't just... Um, you know, some electrical signal in your brain, like, like dreaming. And even then, what is dreaming? Like if we, if we go there, we don't, we don't understand dreaming. There, there are so many things about consciousness that we just do not understand. We might get closer if we change the assumptions that, that are at the root of our thinking about these sorts of things, but really we just don't know. So just to get that out of the way, whenever, whenever one of the skeptics or the atheists um, tries to write these things off, well, they don't really know like because none of us know so i think it's just um it would be more profitable you know in the interest of knowledge to to approach it just at least with an open mind could there be a reality to this and what is that reality and we can even say what could it could there be a reality to this even if we bracket off certain things as impossible so we can take some of the assumptions that like the, the the Dawkins and Schirmer types take about what is possible in the world and say okay well we'll we can look at each of those individually and say oh if they're valid or not and I think some of them are like I totally agree that that it doesn't make that that the philosophical um, like definition of supernaturalism um, is impossible right I don't think that it, it makes sense to be a supernaturalist. In a certain sense, like now you can have an experience and call it supernatural, um, and that's fine. It might be a real experience, but I think you know people should know that when you mean when you use the word supernatural, it means exactly you know what it is. You know, above the natural, not natural. When really, why would I just think that's a dumb place to start? It's like if something happens, if something exists in the world, if there's reality to something, it's part of the natural world. Why can't we just you know take natural view naturalism that way it's if there doesn't need to be a supernaturalism and i think that's the one um one of the biggest problems that um that the new atheists kind of get into is that they they define supernaturalism in such a way that they then don't have to look at anything that might be like a natural paranormal or parapsychological phenomenon it's like that so if you don't, well, if you don't have to think of it, um, I don't want to say that. They just simply, they just, they just define it out of existence, basically. Mm-hmm. So why not? Could these things be natural? You know, maybe they are part of the natural world. Maybe these experiences are part of the natural world. Maybe consciousness is part of the the natural world in such a way that these things are possible, and there isn't any breakage in the the, the laws of causality. Mm-hmm. You know that. In last week's show, we discussed, uh, like we kind of did a little recap, uh, you know, Collingwood's theory of of the mind, 
and uh, especially its evolution through history. And, and we talked about how you know the the artist's way of viewing the world was based on beauty, and that you know in in beauty there was some truth, but it wasn't explicit, and it was you know it was all in the imagination. So it was it contradicted itself and made it, um, which in religion. Um, that imagination was put into became reality. The imaginal forms, these imagination, these forms became reality. And we talked about religious experience and the kind of the uh, the kind of power it had, and how you could have that experience and then say this is reality. What the imaginations or the forms that came along with it, this is reality. And then in the, the scientific worldview, uh, Collingwood writes that the that theory and abstract generalized laws of nature are reality, and that's. You know, that is the, um, the ex- you know, it's an attempt to become explicit about what we know. And I think that that is right now, I mean, you can see it carried to an extreme with like these new atheists in terms of um, uh, making everything like an abstract mechanistic, uh, trying to explain everything according to this this caricature of human knowledge really is what it is. Um, but Collingwood writes um, in... I believe it was speculamentous, but he writes that uh, when the concrete or historical point of view is achieved after the scientific worldview, this is affected by recognizing and transcending the abstractness of the scientific point of view. Man now sees that even in calling himself a machine, he had really been vindicating his own freedom. And in that discovery, he grasps this freedom and makes it truly his own. And he also writes that um, art rests on the ignoring of reality, religion on the ignoring of thought, science on the ignoring of fact, but with a recognition of fact, everything is recognized that is in any sense real. The fact, as historically determined, is the absolute object. Mm-hmm. And when we look at these experiences, like you were talking about, Harrison, that, that's a fact that people are experiencing these things. That's mm-hmm. like the historically determined fact. When you And then... Once you recognize that, then you can, you know, rather than trying to define them out of existence, rather it's in recognizing their reality and in trying to just, just looking at them for what they are, historically dependent, you know, in their context, in where they occurred and understanding them from that point of view, that is, that is the, uh, that seems like the way forward. I mean, because that's, there's such a, there's a huge, huge, I mean, it's like a Charles Fort's, you know, the, the parade of the damned. Was that what he called it? The, yeah, basically like the, the, all the facts that don't fit into our, our abstract theories of reality, our abstract general laws of mm-hmm. sociology and of, you know, social psychology and physics and not to dismiss that all the thinking that went into, you know, like the, the understanding the physical the physical world, but then, you know, to say, well, hey, let's, let's not try and fit everything into, into some grand theory, you know, in some unified theory, because that's, that is that kind of monotheistic, um, approach there, isn't it? Is that an attempt to create that one grand big daddy god of them all theory that explains everything. Mm-hmm. And then, in, in fact, you know, we can't do that. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And what, so what they end up doing is creating a, a worldview that is actually very good at explaining certain things, but it's very good at explaining like a portion of reality. And then what they end up doing is taking that portion as all of reality and then just explaining away everything else. So all the, basically all, all experience that could be termed religious and that can, you know, I guess we could expand that to even 
um, just spiritual experiences or, you know, near death experiences, um, children remembering past lives, um, all the way to parapsychology, like, uh, telepathy and psychokinesis. But, um, all of that is explained away either as imaginary or as, um, just epiphenomenal. It's just something that is created by the illusion of which is created by just your, your body's natural functioning hmm. so that there's no actually reality to it. You, you, free will, for example, for a lot of these people is an illusion. It's just an epiphenomenon. It is, um, it's something that we, that seems to exist to us, but doesn't in reality. And to some of these people, even consciousness itself is like that. We only think we're conscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only think we have experience, but it's just an epiphenomenon of the electrical ac- activity in our brain. And that's, that should be an absurd statement to anyone that is currently conscious because there's no as if consciousness or as if conscious, right? Oh, you just, you just think that you're experiencing. Well, no experience is the, the basic level of experience. It's like if you're experiencing, you can't get below experiencing and try to explain experiencing in terms of something that doesn't have experience. It just, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mentioned that they, they write these things off as imaginary. That's something I, uh, that I wanted to get into, um, that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Collingwood's conception of religious imagery as being based in the imagination in a similar way that art is, except that, you know, art will take any, um, any object of the imagination and just give it form, um, in a work of art. But religion takes certain, uh, like a selection of those imagery of those images and then declares them to be reality. Now, with the the discussion of like the 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 experience from that guy that William James quoted, we're asking the question: Could there be some reality behind the imagery or behind these experiences? And basically, can there be rea- some level of reality to the objects of our imagination, which are not, which can't be just written off as imagination? Right? Can there be like an unseen world? Can there be and religion? I mean, you think of it as as how you how you relate yourself to that unseen world. How you you know you protect yourself from it. You purify yourself. You prepare for you know the afterlife. All about preparing for or interacting with this unseen realm that influences you know humanity in some way. Well, so there there are two things there. One is the the existence of this realm in, in terms of like, we can make statements of fact about it, right? We can make assertions like religion does in that sense. It is, um, the distinction is often made between science and religion that science describes what is and religion describes what we ought to do. Like one has its root in, in the, the world and a description of the world. And the other is, um, has like goal, a goal or aim behind it as in what is the proper way to act within that world, which is studied by science. But within religion, there is an aspect of uh, of making claims that that presume to explain the world, mm-hmm. statements about the way the world is made and about what um, the nature of reality. And then there, uh, so that that's like number one. And number two is how do we interact? Knowing that, how do we interact with the world? How do we interact with not only um, the 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 mundane world around us, but also that 
supernatural or other realm. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, what are the rules of engagement? And so, so the, those are two separate but interlinked ideas. It's it's like we have statements of fact about the nature of reality, and then we have statements of should about how to act within that reality and with that reality. And you could say that religious experiences, um, not give, assigning them any sort of value in terms of like, you know, this is a, this is the right religion or this is the right religious experience. But every time there is some sort of a documented experience like that, it gives you information in some way, possibly because it has the potential to give you information about what that reality is. Mm-hmm. It's data for sure. It's data. Well, this may sound um, like a non sequitur, but I think math might have something to do with this, or it's a, it's a way into the question mm. about the nature of uh, the nature of imagination and the, the possible reality of objects of the imagination. Because <clears throat> there's a, de- a debate in philosophy, the philosophy of mathematics, and there has been for um, well, I guess it's generations now. Right, since like Pythagoras, maybe, possibly. Well, <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, well, yeah, the debate's been around, but th- these terms of the debate are more of a mo- modern phenomenon. Um, no, but I guess, I guess, well, I, yeah, the debate's been around forever, like, ever since math, I suppose. But that is the the degree of re- uh, how much reality should we give the objects of mathematics? Um, because if you think about it, from our modern materialistic worldview. Um, mathematics should be impossible because the only thing that exists is is what we consider physical matter, something that can be um, put, you know, manifested in a physical form, and then that form will interact, or you know, the, all those bits of matter will interact in ways, and then we, I guess, I, we just when we dis, when we study the the way in which those interact, we we find mathematics. But then it seems that mathematics is all also a strictly abstract thing that is that can that is true and that which can be engaged in regardless of you know uh, any uh, observation of the natural natural world. So, for example, you know you can close your eyes and Im- imagine um, um, a mathematical equation, and you can work your way through it. You can. Even even just very simple, you know, addition, subtraction, subtraction, multiplication, you know, powers. You basically you have these you have certain symbols that you manipulate and um, relate to each other in certain set patterns, and it works, right? That's the 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 the, the miracle of mathematics is that it works. Not only does it work abstractly in the sense that no matter which way you know you do the numbers you get the you get the answer and everything everything fits together and works in these very ordered um um well just very ordered ways it also works in the real world and so this is i can't remember if i, I said this on the on the show previously or not but one of the things that amazes me is that oftentimes you'll find a theoretical mathematician who creates this this weird cool theory and then it's only like decades later that some physicist studying some like subatomic particle interaction will then find, oh, you know, this this interaction actually, um, it, how do I don't even know how to put it. This interaction actually manifests that equation basically. That equation applies 
that relation of numbers and mathematical objects applies to this to this physical situation and so everything from like the um you know newton's laws to to advanced you know quantum physics there's there's this mathematics going on behind it that works and um so you've got mathematics that works so the question has been what is the nature of the, of these mathematical objects are they real and can they be real in a material universe and actually when you when you look at the the philosophers who have been involved in this question the, the only the only justification they can have is basically well we can't fit mathematical objects in our materialistic worldview so we just have to um we just have to accept or we just have to how do they put it um accept them as like a brute fact we can't explain them but we can't understand the world without them even though we can't account for them whatsoever right we can't account for the fact that mathematical objects seem to have an objective reality even though they only exist in an abstract space even though they can only be accessed mentally and abstractly but at the same time they seem to be um they seem to be they seem to manifest themselves in physical interactions so it's actually a big mystery and the the way that the well we can't explain it today but we used to be able to explain it because um this this part of the the debate and the question goes back to to aristotle and plato because plato posited uh you know a platonic realm this basically other this other realm where these where abstract forms could exist <clears throat> aristotle didn't like that because he thought that any any abstract entity can only exist basically within an actual entity and the the neoplatonists kind of reconciled the two and said okay well where can abstract entities like mathematical objects exist well if they must exist in a mind because the you know the only th- things that we know of that that can hold abstract uh, abstractions are minds well then where are where is mathematics well it is in the mind of god and so for so traditionally for for you know centuries the the place where these abstractions and these numbers which seem to be real but which aren't physically that don't exist physically as numbers the place where they existed was the mind of god and now that god is impossible and doesn't exist we don't have a place to put numbers and w- without going back to like platonism but again when we when we talk about platonism we have to a- answer the question well where where does this abstract realm exist and how does it interact with with our own it's like that's a that's a totally speculative question which um you know most well which a lot of like serious philosophers can't get behind because it's like where where is this transcendent realm how how does it interact with ours how this is the problem with dualism that that was you know um that has raged since Descartes is that if you have two totally different types of something how do you, how do you get them to interact well by definition they can't so there must be some reconciling those two um those two realms basically the realm of matter and the realm of mind and it seems well it's let's just say that it makes more sense to posit um 
a, like a universal cosmic mind than it does to to just r- write anything off anything of that sort off completely as materialism does. So then, what else is in this divine mind? We there's mathematics. Mathematics is is part of the divine cosmic mind. It was what else is it like? Well, is logic? Well, you could say okay. Well, last or two weeks ago, we were talking about free will, right? And um, I brought up the example of like breakfast. Well, this time I'm going to use the donuts instead. You know, where you have you can pick between different donuts, right? And which one are you going to pick? Well, the only way to make a choice is if one is is weighted as more important than the other, right? Than the others. And so, like, if you didn't have any feelings towards, any feelings for any of these donuts, you wouldn't pick any of them because none would stand out uh, from the others. And so, in a sense, if you're going to make a choice, a free choice, as we'd, you know, as we'd call it, then there needs to be some weight given to the options. And that, that weight is value, and we experience it uh, through feeling, and we experience it as value. And at, like there's, there's an attraction towards it. And so um, if, if there is uh, like a cosmic mind in which we find eternal objects like mathematical, um, <clears throat> mathematical objects, it would, it would also potentially be the, the source of values. Um, because if you think about, well, use the example of truth. So truth is another abstract thing, right? When you're looking around the, at, around the world, you can't find um, like truth in a physical form, right? It's like, oh, there's that piece of truth, and there's that <laughs> piece of truth. Oh, and that, there's that piece of lie. It's like, no, there's just stuff. Mm-hmm. And truth is an abstract uh it's an abstraction that requires like a comparison to an ideal, right? Well, a comparison to a, a norm. So you, it's a mental activity. So where does truth exist? Why, how does truth exist? If all there is is matter, then we can't account for truth. Um, and that's something that like on a very fundamental basic level that, that materialists either don't comprehend or, or haven't thought about. They haven't thought about the consequent or the, you know, the, not the consequences, but the the logical implications of what they think. Because if all that exists is matter, you can't have truth and you can't have science. Because what what is your yardstick, right? How if you have three different theories about something, let's say these theories just kind of came out of nowhere, um, because well, you just got three theories. Which one is the better theory? Well, in order for one to be better, you have to have a um, like. There's a, a comparison to an ideal that that is implicit in that. One has to be uh, one has to conform more to the ideal than the other two. Now, when we have when we say that that ideal is truth, it's like well, that means it corresponds to reality. Well, how can you compare something to uh, you know a, an idealized or thought like well, not a thought reality? How can you compare reality? to this like abstract theory without a mind it's like you you can't do it and you can't you can't make any of those comparisons without truth that and that i th- i think the reason that it's um that most people don't think about it is it just it just shows how ingrained 
the truth is to to everyone. It's like we know what reality is. Mm-hmm. Like we we experience it every day, and we know that um, we know what happens when we are not like in line with reality, right? Mm-hmm. If you think you're walking on a bridge and you're actually walking, you know, over the Grand Canyon and, you know, plunging to your death, you know what the difference is. One, you know, you're you're either on the on a bridge or you're not on a bridge. Truth is just it's it's the, you know, it's it's the water in which we're swimming, right? Mm-hmm. If we were fished. It's like we just can't escape that idea of truth mm-hmm. and that experience of truth, of reality, you know, the, the reality that we encounter. And so the, what we can, when we look at, when we're trying to account for the facts of existence and the facts of experience, and that would include everything from just your everyday waking consciousness to altered states of consciousness to every kind of uh, mental operation you can engage in and any kind of mental activity, when you're looking at the, the grand totality of all of those, um, there are certain things that you, that you need to be able to account for. And some of the big ones are like mathematics and just value in general. The, 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 not, not, not even just the concept of value, but the experience of value, just value itself. It's like, I don't think there's any, any more basic way of, of explaining um, value than just that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's this feeling of importance. It is an, an intrinsic sense of importance, of value. And, um, and it has an effect on you. And we experience that, um, in life and life has experienced that for billions of years that um that knowledge that feeling when you're when you're in line with reality or when you're not or when you're when you're doing something that's going to be good for you or when it's going to be bad for you like these are objective things we experience like our potential survival or destruction we experience that um with our feelings and um and so it expresses itself through emotions but to, to kind of bring it all back to, to that idea of the cosmic mind, the, the, uh, the, the organizing principle of truth could only exist in a mind. Mm-hmm. Well, at least, at least I'd, I'd say that's a, a working hypothesis in the sense that, that unless we're going to try to posit something that we have no experience of, mm-hmm. we should root it in the things that we actually know exist, like we know minds exist because we have them. Mm-hmm. And so does it make more sense to think of of truth having its source in something that, that isn't a mind or that is like the ultimate mind? Mm-hmm. Well, it makes more sense to, to posit an ultimate mind than it does to, to posit that truth is something that is not um, abstract or mental or that is just physical, like... Um, yeah, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Right, but and when you posit like the you know this ultimate mind, then uh, do you run into the same problems that the original like theists ran into, where it's like, well, so God, there's this ultimate mind. Is did that mind did that create the did that create the universe, or was that just a what does the mind what does the mind do? Where where do we get our minds from? You know, are we part of that mind? That, I don't know. That gets back to, I guess, what we were talking about last week um, about creation out of nothing, mm-hmm. and how the like the doctrine of of well, the doctrine of creation out of chaos, yeah, <laughs> which was the original, um, well, Greek and Jewish idea, mm-hmm. is that there's a pre-existent world. 
but it, it's a chaos. It doesn't, it isn't formed yet, but there, but the existence of a preexistent world <clears throat> implies that it has, that it, it is not completely at the whim of the divine mind, right? You've got a body, essentially a chaotic body and an organizing mind. And the, so when you, when you just throw that omnipotence creation out of nothing idea out the window, then, and just look at this idea of a, of a chaos with a mind that, that directs it and orders it and uh, brings it into order, then you, you don't run into the same problems as you do with, uh, with an omnipotent God, because you can account for free will without having to ask whether, whether um, God controls all actions or with, whether God gave you free will and could interrupt or could basically take over your mind but just chooses not to, or maybe he does take over your mind. You just get into kind of silly mm-hmm. questions that that are kind of on the level of how many angels can fit on the the head of a pin. It's like we wouldn't even be asking these questions if we if we didn't have this idea of this omnipotent God to begin with. But when you, but here, here's a way of looking at it. <clears throat> it's like. I like, I really like what, uh, Peterson has been saying lately about the nature of consciousness. And one of the things he says is basically, if you look at consciousness, it seems as if the nature of consciousness is to encounter, um, a sea of possibilities and then to manifest, choose one of those possibilities to then manifest. And that it's, it's basically a looking into the future, basically possible futures and then manifesting one of those futures in the present. And that sets you in the, in the direction um, <clears throat> to 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 meet that ideal future that you're that you're living in, or that you want to live in and that you're heading towards, and that's if that's the nature of consciousness, then if we if we look in terms of that cosmic consciousness with that that uh, that chaos that unordered chaos of that is the world, perhaps there's perhaps it's analogous. So perhaps the the cosmic mind actually sees possibilities. It sees possible worlds, mm-hmm. like entire worlds, and then makes a decision to to then see that decision manifest in the world. Now, how might that work? Well, then then is it like a okay now world chaos? You do this. Um, how do, you know how does that work if God is not omnipotent? Well, I think this is where we get to. Um, to the idea of the the cosmic king or the ideal king in comparison to the cosmic criminal, um, maybe we can look in, in at that kind of comparison a bit more in depth. But just looking at it in one way, um, like the ideal king, and this goes back to we'll go back to like Medita- Mediterranean traditions. This, this is like the ideal king in in Greece and Rome and um, the entire Mediterranean world um, back then, Near Eastern as well, is that the ideal king was <clears throat> the 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 like basically the best person available, the best citizen or the best inhabitant of a of a people that was the basically the most just, the most talented, the the best person for the job essentially, and that they through their actions they um, they represented God's will. So they were basically the, like a representative of God on earth. And what did they do? Well, they brought order to the state or to the nation, to the people. They protected the people from 
the disorder and the, the potential chaos of the external world, and they um, they promoted intern the internal harmony of that group. And how does a good king do that? Well, what is what is real power in the in the the, the human experience? Um, well, even when you well, it's persuasion, basically. Um, and pers- persuasion, not ne- not in a uh, a nasty way, or like a manip- not in a manipulative way, but it's the basically the pr- it, again, it's the presentation of a possibility to an individual consciousness or to a, to a, a massive individual consciousness. Consciousness is here. It's here is a possibility. If you see the value in this possibility, then then follow it. Um, well, and and even the like the uh, if you imagine like a great leader that everyone adores and looks up to, and they present an idea, people are going to, you know, naturally going to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Maybe it's not, but even if it is, then that's even better, right? Because you have a great idea that people should want, and just by virtue of, of this powerful person presenting it, people are, are persuaded by it and move towards it. It's, kind of, that's, it's not a great analogy, but it kind, of, it kind of would be an analogy for the way a naturalistic god would work in the universe. So it's not that God can just, you know, break through the barriers and cause every cause the, the the laws of causality to go haywire. It's it's no that that and there's no that like there's no gaps in which God fits in and and does his thing. It's that there's a causal web, a causal network of the entire creation and which we study with science and which we experience as as reality and the the influence of god is a constant influence within that network and that would be the presentation of possibilities itself with mm-hmm. themselves so possibilities in in the mental kind of in the in the mental way like you're talking yeah. about values and mathematics mm-hmm. you're talking about the mind itself is the possibilities mm-hmm. i mean like you said jordan peterson thought that consciousness was to select uh, po- uh, possibilities, potentialities, and make them reality mm-hmm. out of the billions. But then, you know, that consciousness itself only sees them through the mind. Right. And that mind in and of itself is what we're saying. That is the that is G O D God, not G A W D God. The the pre- the presentation of possibilities, all of the possibilities, the potentials uh, right. that you can choose from. Right. So not only does it uh, well. So the cosmic mind would be the source of those possibilities, mm-hmm. but also what gives them force, right. essentially. Because if, you're, if you just imagine like possibilities, again, you come back to the question of, well, well which possibility is better than the other one? Mm-hmm. What yardstick do I use? Mm-hmm. Well, um, this you can get back to, it's almost like a cosmic telepathy kind of thing, where if you're, you're constantly, the, the hypothesis would be that, like the cosmic mind is constantly telepath- telepathically projecting the the best possibility possible mm-hmm. into the minds of all creatures, and then whether that creature then makes that choice or not is is up to the creature, right? Mm-hmm. It's up to the creature's free will and the conditions um, surrounding them and their history. And so, basically, uh, like in the case of humans. You, this is a, a process philosophy viewpoint or process theology is that God is constantly presenting the, the, the ideal aim in any given situation and that 
humans are then free either to to follow it or potentially to to not follow it, and that's mm-hmm. free will. And so what you what you'd basically have is that um, um, you could have humans that totally ignore or um, the message is just completely drowned out by other signals. And that could be just signals from, from the past, from habit, or just competing signals where, where you have like developed a, a taste for something that is, is not good for the world, not good for, not the best possible option. And you just, you see that in, in people, it just comes down to, to everyday life where you, you look at some people and, you know, some people, you, well, you might say you're not living up to your potential, right? And, you're making a bad choice. Your 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 priority. You don't have your priorities straight. And so, because because in that moment, that's what that, that that person's priorities are. Like if they were to theoretically, you know, if they were to sit down and actually think it through, you know, they'd say, "Oh, this is a bad choice." And other people can can see the situation objectively and say, you know, objectively, there's a better way that you could be doing this. And that, how do they know? It's like. How how can you even tell that one thing's better than another? Mm-hmm. Well, in a in a materialistic universe, no one thing is better than another thing. They're mm-hmm. all just things, because value is can't you you can't have a a, a physical material value. Your value is an abstract thing. It's a mental thing. It's a comparison. So so in a materialistic world, you can't have you know one thing isn't better than another. But we all know that's not the case. We all experience that every day, like. Every instant of our lives is predicated on the idea that there's that some things are better than others, that there's a better way and there's a worse way. And <clears throat> so, if if there's a place for a natural god in the world, it would be as the, the 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 kind of vivifier and presenter of possibilities, mm-hmm. where it's like here's the it, it's like a constant wish for the universe to be the best that it could be, just like we can we'll constantly wish we might constantly wish for. The, uh, for the people we love to be the best they could be for their own interest and, and ours for the interest of everyone, um, just in service of the, of that of uh, you know of potentially you know being better, living in a better world, and ideally in putting into practice the best of of, of all worlds. Yeah. I, I I think that you know that fits the you know God the Father or God the the Mother the parental basically mm-hmm. viewpoint that was that's been around for you know however many thousands of and thousands of years and that for a lot of people is just common sense and you know if they think about God for a, a moment you know that's I think the kind of conception they have but in in our uh, in our culture uh, mainstream culture it's uh, like you said there's there's just a huge gap there that was left by the secular uh, by the you know, the me- the mechanistic viewpoint that said that there's no God. Well, then once God was gone, there was no place for math. There's no place for values necessarily. No place for consciousness. And so then, just one by one, they just kept kind of falling away, falling away, falling away. And we've kind of we've we've uh, we've got no no refuge really for our understanding of you know for that common sense sort of understanding of what God. God, you know, I mean, you, you know, not a bearded man in the sky, like mm-hmm. we said, like, you know, some people, like we talked about the implicit truths, uh, last episode, uh, we talked about the implicit truths in, re- in religion and how they're not explicit. They don't make absolute sense, but, you know, the implicit truth of God, the father in the sky, we, you know, that's like basically, you know, the parent 
of mm-hmm. presenting the opportunities, you know, the, mm-hmm. the good parent, the good, the good parent that the guide, know, through the guide yeah, that, you know, lets you honor your free will, lets you do, you know, I mean, to the, you know, the extent, but then there's also consequences in reality. You can't mm-hmm. just come, you know, just go willy nilly without, you know, reality at some point gets, you know, smacks you in the face mm-hmm. sometimes, uh, with a, <laughs> the baseball bat. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe to to wrap up, we can take it back to what we were talking about last week in terms of the story, right? The grand narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and the grand narrative being that there's disorder in the world and God will enter the world to, to set things right. Yeah. And taken literally to, uh, to a modern sensibility, it sounds like nonsense. Um, but there are some deep ideas in there that may have, you know, a great degree of truth. Maybe before getting into the narrative, I just want to make one comment on the, the, the father God with the beard kind of thing. It's like, well, God might not be an old bearded man, but it may be that an old bearded man is one of the closest, like, representations for how it feels. Right. right to actually to actually interact with uh, with the, the the supreme being of the of the cosmos like the mind of the cosmos mm-hmm. is that there's a, a fatherly nature to that and that we what so that the feeling of of a of a father and the, the 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 feeling in a child of the interaction with the father may approximate to some degree the feeling of a human in relation to the the mind of the universe so it may be a very apt metaphor you know who knows that would that would require some actual you know thinking on the on the subject that i i don't think has been done mm-hmm. like in any great degree of uh you know with any great rigor or um you know interest it's like well maybe maybe you know what is metaphor why does metaphor work you know why do these symbols these why does this religious imagery work you know, maybe there's something to that. And I think, well, I think it would be, uh, you know, uh, a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. Might might help us out a bit as a, as a species. But back to the narrative, it's like, well, what might, if we look at this narrative and try not to take it literally, what might it mean? Well, there's, there is a constant state of disorder, right? Because we, because the, the world itself and, and humans in particular we're constantly on the edge between chaos and order and we're constant negotiation between the two. And so on, well, on the one hand, we're constantly in a state of relative disorder. We can always go in the direction of more order, right? That's always a possibility and it's what we're constantly striving for. But on the, but there's also periods of great, of great disorder, you know, greater disorder compared to other times and places and the idea being that there is something basically there's something wrong and it needs to be fixed now god will intervene well how will god intervene well traditionally that has been thought of in terms of miracles and revelation revelation being a a type of miracle it's god intervening getting into that gap in the causal framework and um and having his way with the universe Mm -hmm. um when actually it may be that 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 there's a, a reality to that in the sense that the message just becomes clear, right? And and the message is constantly being sent. It's like in, what was that in Firefly? The, the, the signal's always going or something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's like the cosmic signal is always being sent and 
there are just times where it's just that much more important to, to listen for the signal. And that is felt and experienced, you know, as conscience. And it's, it's a feeling. It, well, it could be more than that. It could be in an altered state of consciousness. There could be like a, a very intense, um, and strange experience that, that carries the message. But the, the main point being that it's just, it's a natural phenomenon. It's just like when, like, uh, religious experiences, altered states of consciousness are natural phenomena. Not that they're just material, materialistic, but that they are part of the natural world. It's something that is part of our causal framework, part of, you know, it's just part of the world, part of what we experience. It's a part of how we explain the world. Yeah. Like you were saying, you know, it's part of, you know, if you want to make sense out of the entire world, you need that. And in your, you know, in your vocabulary, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to be, it needs to be taken into account. Yeah. Um, because I, ideally a good philosophy, a good science and a good religion should all take into account all of the facts of existence. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you can't ignore any facts. And that's what we get when we look at the materialists and the atheists is that will, they will ignore and write off certain facts. Um, and they will, they will pretend or convince themselves that they're doing so based on sound logic and reasoning and, and appraisal of evidence. But what it comes down to is that they either don't know what they're talking about. They haven't looked at it or they, um, they have dismissed the, the phenomenon as impossible and therefore conclude that the evidence is bad simply because they they've already made the conclusion the the judgment that it's impossible Mm -hmm. it's so they're basically putting the cart before the the horse in that case because they haven't actually looked at the evidence what what you should do is you look at the evidence and say okay what can account for that evidence Mm -hmm. instead of saying oh well that fact over there is impossible therefore that fact didn't happen it's like you don't get to do that if you if you're pretending to be you know uh, a sound thinker Mm -hmm. i guess um, well, with that said, is there anything that we planned on saying that we haven't said yet? Did you have a, do you have another William James quote? Yeah, I do. I have a, I've, I have one. It's kind of, it's relatively interesting. Um, this is, I guess we could look at this in terms of like our, like I was just grabbing earlier about how religion is kind of like how you are the life of religion, the inner life of religion and the kind of in the most general term could be that it's, um, you know, the, the idea that there's an unseen or invisible order, um, you know, out there that we interact with and that, you know, in order to survive and in order to thrive, we have to be able to harmoniously adjust ourselves to it, uh, in some way, or at least acknowledge its existence and, you know, and, and be awake and open to it, uh, or awake to it. And so, um, This is what uh, William James wrote. The sentiment of reality can indeed attach itself so strongly to our object of belief that our whole life is polarized through and through, so to speak, by its sense of the existence of the thing believed in. And yet that thing, for purpose of definite description, can hardly be said to be present to our mind at all. 
It is as if a bar of iron, without touch or sight, with no representative faculty whatever, might nevertheless be strongly endowed with an inner capacity for magnetic feeling, and as if, through the various arousals of its magnetism by magnets coming and going in its neighborhood, it might be consciously determined to different attitudes and tendencies. Such a bar of iron could never give you an outward description of the agencies that had caused this. Um, Yeah, so, you know, you never know. You know, be careful what I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially in today's world, you never know. There's just uh, everywhere you go, there's so many crazy, crazy ideas floating around. And so, well, that, need a good religion. That quote reminded me of what we were talking about in regards to Collingwood last week. Um, and just the idea of like a, an aesthetic consciousness and a religious consciousness. And when he, when he talks about the two, he says that basically that the, the, it's kind of like knowing on some deep primordial level that isn't um, explicitly like thinking. It's not like it, you, you feel it basically. You have this like when you, when you hear a, a good work of art, it's not like, or when you hear a great piece of music that really moves you, it's like you can't just immediately put into words why that is or what it is about the music it's like, oh, it was that G sharp over the A that, you know, made me feel this yeah. grand sense of meaning. It's like, no. And if you were to say that, you would lose it. <laughs> right. And it, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's almost as if the, the, something about this altered state of consciousness is that, it, or some of these altered states of consciousness is that they, they open up like a, or they facilitate a, an experience or a knowing that's on a like a different level, yeah, uh, on a, like some different module of consciousness that uh, that is maybe more primordial, more primitive, mm-hmm. more basic, or or um, less less complex, less highly ordered mm-hmm. um, than than you know the kind of conscious, rational thinking that we think we have mm-hmm. when we're when we're awake. So it's like it's something deep, basically, mm-hmm. like it, and. If the if the so it could be that the the unconscious the subconscious is the actual um, um, means by which or um, kind of like the instrument kind yeah of, the instrument yeah yeah maybe the yeah some instrument play some yeah. instrumental role in detecting and yeah yeah okay well with that said I think uh, I think we'll probably end it there the overall message being that the you know we may have this idea of of god as um as the literal symbol that we're presented you know as children and and by by religious figures because we're, we're presented with this literal image of of god but that does not kind of encapsulate or encompass the 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 extent of the the possible reality of God. It's like we shouldn't limit ourselves to the symbol, that, and and that's what uh, that's what both dogmatic fundamentalists do, and it's also what dogmatic atheists do, is they take things literally and they don't try to look behind behind the symbol and try to find out what the actual meaning is and what that how that meaning might have relevance for our lives mm-hmm. and extreme importance for our lives, and um, just also just extreme importance for um, for li- living a, a life that uh, is not only good 
but that is kind of rationally backed up. Because mm-hmm. I know, like all the atheists, they want to they want reasons for believing in certain things. They want a good justification for, let's say, believing in a supernatural god. They can't find a, and I totally agree with them. If there's no good justification for, for, um, well, I don't think there's any good justification for believing in an omnipotent, omnipotent supernatural god. Now, that's not to say that that there's no value in, let's say, religious experience. And Michael Shermer would even agree with that. He'd say that these experiences are real. We just don't know the nature of them. I'd just add that if we could get rid of the baggage of, um, you know, 1,800 years of of some pretty like dumb philosophical and theological presuppositions, then we might actually be able to come up with a philosophy that can encompass both science and religion, mm-hmm. and in which they can both work without contradicting each other. And if we have that, that is just, uh, in my mind at least, that's a way of of ordering the mind, which then orders the life. And if we are, um, it's just a, a way of bringing a little bit more order to the chaos of our lives. And so I hope that uh, God can do that for you. <laughs> I hope you will bring God into your lives, <laughs> all dear dear listeners, and uh, and pet his giant god beard in the process. Was that blasphemous enough? <laughs> okay. You're getting there. All right. Well, with that said, thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another show on some topic. And tune in tomorrow for Behind the Headlines. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week.